With Citizenship and Immigration Canada making it increasingly difficult to speak to an officer, there are a few places to turn for information that can be relied upon. The Canadian Immigration Podcast was created to fill this void by offering the latest information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. Please welcome ex-immigration officer and Canadian immigration lawyer, Mark Holthy. As he answers a wide variety of immigration questions and shares practical tips and guidance to help you along your way. Well, I'm back again, once again, actually, with one of my favorite guests, and that is uh, Rekha McNutt, who is an immigration lawyer practicing in Calgary. Welcome back, Rekha. How are you? Thanks, Mark. I'm I'm doing well. Um, it's been a bit of a crazy time for you and me and everybody else in the world, but um, relatively speaking, my life is very good and, and practice has been good, so I can't, uh, can't complain. That's awesome. Things are good. That's great. Well, it's been a little while since we recorded. We actually recorded our last episode. I think it might have even been um, in December, I think even of last year, potentially, that we recorded the episode, which was ultimately released when I got around to it on February the 25th, which is um, a continuation of a special series that we're doing on immigration hearings and appeals. And so back on uh, February the 25th, we did one specifically targeted towards sponsorship appeal. So remind us, Rekha, what sponsorship appeals are all about again, and then we'll direct people back to episode 73. Sure. So we were talking, um, so the, the idea behind this was to do a series of all about the Immigration and Refugee Board and all the different boards that are involved. But we started with the Immigration Appeal Division, which does sort of two separate things. One is sponsorship appeals. So when you're sponsoring a spouse or a common law partner, um, or parents, grandparents, somebody who you're allowed to sponsor and the visa office has refused their application, sometimes you have a right to appeal that to the IAD, which is the Immigration Appeal Division, and they can overturn the visa office decision if it's warranted in that circumstance. So that's what we talked about last time. And like you said, today we're going to talk about the other thing that the, IR, uh, the IAD does, which is uh, removal order appeals and residency obligation appeals, both of which sort of are removal related. Exactly. Essentially when a PR does something wrong and gets <laughs> themselves in trouble. Exactly. Yeah. And so residency, you know, you, you need to be able to demonstrate that you've lived in Canada, been in Canada at least two years in every five year period. And, uh, and then on the removal order appeals, well, you, whether it's, you know, criminality, misrepresentation or whatever it might be, yeah, you've made some bad decisions. So this is excellent. Well, why don't we why don't we start off? Um, do you want to start off with the residency side of things? Yeah, I think we should because uh, residency obligation appeals happen in two contexts, and we'll start with what happens if you're not in Canada and a visa officer abroad decides that you aren't meeting residency obligations. But you can also get in trouble in Canada or on coming back to Canada at the port of entry. And um, that sort of will transition us into the removal order appeals because that would fall into that category if uh, the issues arise within our borders. Excellent. 
so with uh do you want me to start right yeah, in? dive right so in all yeah, right dive, so residency dive right obligations in. like you said people have to live in canada for enough time and that's two years out of every five years which is 730 days and it doesn't have to be continuous it can be you know sometime here sometime there with gaps in between and it's five years back from when you're trying to come back or when you're applying for your next PR card. So that's a relevant date that's important. And so overseas, when this issue comes up is for a permanent resident who is outside of Canada, who no longer has a valid PR card for whatever reason, maybe it's expired, and they need to come back. And to be able to come back, they have to get what's called a permanent resident travel document from a visa office, wherever they're living. And when they ask for that travel document, the visa officer will determine whether that person has met their residency obligation. And sometimes a permanent resident with an expired PR card may very well have met obligations. And that often happens in an emergency situation where the person's been continuously living in Canada, maybe never renew their PR card because they didn't have to, and then had to make an emergency trip outside the country and are trying to come back. Those people are not going to have any issues. But if it's a person that's been spending too much time outside Canada and they're trying to get a travel document to come back, an officer will assess to make sure they meet residency obligations. And if they don't, the officer can consider whether they should still be allowed to come back on humanitarian grounds. Maybe there's a very compelling reason why they weren't able to meet residency obligations. But if they say, no, there's not enough humanitarian reasons to let me, uh, to give you what you're asking for, to give you a travel document to come back, and I'm writing you up for not meeting your residency obligation. Well, in that situation, that person has two options. One is to accept the decision and renounce their permanent residence and apply to come back to Canada as a visitor or temporary resident. But if they want to try to keep their PR status, the way to do that is to appeal that decision to the Immigration Appeal Division. And for outside Canada decisions, they've got 60 days to do that from the time that the, the visa office says you're not meeting obligations, residency obligations. Now, Rika, when you have a situation where you know you're not meeting those residency obligations and, you know, the writing's kind of on the wall, does it make sense to put your best foot forward at the permanent resident travel docket uh, that, that PRTD application stage, you know, with respect to your HNCs, is it is it a good idea to, to really, really load that up heavy and see if an officer would, you know, would, would allow um, the issuance of it um, in those circumstances? Or is it pretty much a fait accompli and you're just not, you know, they're just going to do a simple calculation. Nope, sorry, too bad, so sad, you're going to need to appeal. Like no, it's always it's always worth it to try at the very outset to, to get what you want. Why not? It's a visa office application. If you can put everything before that office, you never know. They might just say, oh, you know what? I agree. There is compelling enough circumstances here that I think you should get your travel document and I'm, I'm going to allow that to happen. So I would say absolutely, because the amount of time and cost involved in pursuing an appeal is so much higher than just trying to get that officer to side with you. So there's no harm in asking. The worst they can say is no, in which case you do have a recourse to the IED. And then if they, if you are so fortunate, <clears throat> then you travel back to Canada and then you stay put. Well, exactly. So if you're allowed back in, that's your best case scenario. You come back, you stay put for the next two years um, and then get your new PR card and you do not leave Canada until then. That's what I advise my yeah. clients. The clock starts over. Exactly. Okay, that makes sense. All right, so, so continue down this path. So when um, the officer abroad decides you're not me meeting residency obligations and there's not enough HNCs and they make that decision, you've got that 60 days to file what's called a notice of appeal to the IAD. And that's a simple document, it's a form. But you send it to the Immigration Appeal Division in Canada telling them you're appealing this finding of this visa officer. Now, while that appeal is going to happen in Canada, you may or may not be able to come back. So if um, you can make an application to the IED to tell them to instruct the visa officer to give you a travel document to come back to attend your hearing, but that's often rejected. I've, I've made that request before for somebody who's not been in Canada and they've said, no, there's no, there's no need mm -hmm. for you to come back. We can do your appeal by phone. Uh, and with all of these COVID issues happening, I'm hoping that phone meeting now translates into Skype or Zoom or whatever right. yes. video method might be available. But 
in essence, you're, you're staying put where you are. Your hearing is going to be remote. And if the IED grants your appeal, meaning they think there's enough humanitarian reasons why you should be allowed to keep your permanent residence, um, until that positive decision is made, you're stuck where you are. You're not going to be able to come back to Canada. Hmm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, that's so it can yeah. be a bit awkward. I mean, if you're not here physically, and I find when you're doing hearings remotely, when the person's not here, there's always a disconnect. And when you have somebody right in front of you, you can appreciate whether they're being genuine, whether you know, get a sense of their credibility. All of that sort of is lacking when you have somebody on the phone, especially you can't see their face, you can't see their mannerisms. Um, but that disconnect really is a disadvantage in terms of um, how the board member could perceive you and, and how credible they find you to be. Yeah, that's interesting. I remembered our last, well, our, our what became our national <coughs> immigration conference, which was the online version through the CBA that we did just, just recently, we just finished. I remember the officers saying that in their, from their perspective, they could tell credibility just as well through a video conference as they could in person. And that was their, uh, you know, the visual cues in some some cases, they said, because the image, you know, that they're looking at sometimes is even larger. They can tell even better whether someone is telling the truth or not. <laughs> and so and that may be fair on video. But yeah, but not on phone. Just a phone call. Yeah, yeah, that's I can yeah. imagine how hard that would be. So right now, just to confirm. Um, so right now, these are these are by phone. They, they don't uh, have any uh, ability at this stage to do like a Zoom video meeting they do so the IED released some uh policies about how i want to say within the last year or so where they said you can make an application if you want the person overseas to appear by video so it's not automatic the default is still by phone but if it's if you make the application then they can accommodate i think it was skype mm -hmm. i've never made the application um most of the appeals that i do are sponsorship appeals and where that would come in is where the the applicant abroad would testify as well. Right. And I haven't made an application yet to do that by Skype, but I've been told that that's, that's how you get them on video. <laughs> the problem is a lot of the times, some of the places that these people live, the video and internet yeah. connection yeah, not is enough. so poor that it's not, like there's so much frustration in trying to get that to work properly that it's not worth it to no. try. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. A yeah. Lot of sense. Mm -hmm. So in terms of, that's the outside Canada process in terms of residency obligation appeals. Where that, that same person could get into trouble is on re-entry to Canada. So say somebody's been living abroad for quite a long time and not meeting residency, but they still have a valid PR card, and that can certainly happen, which means they'll be able to get on a plane and come back to Canada. But there might be an officer at the airport that says, I have, I'm suspicious about whether you're spending enough time in Canada or not. Um, and they could ask a whole bunch of questions about where you've been, how much time you've spent in all sorts of places. And who is it at, at every, is it Gordon Maynard at every conference he does about how he talks about they have no right to question. I was just going to say that. I was going to say, okay, okay. So Rika, I say, <clears throat> I'm a permanent resident and I refuse to answer your questions. Uh, here's my proof uh, that I'm a permanent resident and therefore um, I, w I wish to be admitted. And so where does it go from there in reality? Like I I'm sure you're, you know, there's some balance with, you know, how you're advising your clients, but um, what do you think? Well, I typically don't get consulted until after they've come back in. <laughs> so as a permanent resident, they have a right of entry. So even if they get questioned and even if there are problems, they will absolutely be allowed back in. That's no question. But they might have some other things to deal with after they get in. So in this situation, if that Port of Entry officer questions them about where they've been, how long they've been out of Canada, most people will very truthfully answer that question because they don't they would never think of saying, I will I refuse to answer your questions. And I imagine if they did that, then the next step, I would imagine that the officer would take is to contact inland Canada Border Services, who would then start an investigation internally as to this person's whereabouts. So I think ultimately they would have to answer for their residency one way or another. But what how I see it transpire is at the port of entry, they're asked these questions. And if it seems like they're not meeting residency obligations, then the officer goes down the path of 
writing up reports against them, which eventually results in a removal order being issued against them. Hmm. All right. Yeah. So we've got and the so we've got the this removal order. Yeah. Ah, gotcha. Okay. And that removal order is not issued by the officer, but it's issued by another board called the Immigration Division in Canada. And that board we'll talk about another day, but they have very little jurisdiction as to whether they're allowed to say anything but yay or nay. They don't have humanitarian jurisdiction. They just have, you know, if the facts are proven, they must issue a removal order. But that's when you go to the IAD. Once again, you file your notice of appeal. And in Canada, the timeline's different. So for any kind of removal order appeal, 30 days from the date that you get the decision that there's been a removal order issued against you. That's when you have you have to file that appeal within that timeline. Now, I know we've talked about this before, Rika, but what if you miss it? Like, how much flexibility is there? Like, what what level of, um, you know, of, of evidence or argument do you have to reach in order to allow something to go forward, notwithstanding the fast, notwithstanding the fact you've missed that deadline is it possible it's it's possible there are you can make an application to the IAD to allow the appeal to be late filed it is an uphill battle because at the time that you get the removal order you get very clear instructions that mm-hmm. say you can appeal this and oftentimes at the immigration division they'll ask you right there do you wish to appeal this and you can sign a form right away so it's hard to explain why you might not have filed <laughs> the appeal in time especially when Starting the appeal is very straightforward. It's one form, or it's a two-page form that you fill out and you send it in by fax. Yeah, see, so what, it's not difficult to do. <laughs> so, here, so I'm thinking of this movie that I watched years and years ago. And so I actually, I was hit by a vehicle and I was in a coma and I was in a hospital. I meant to file it, but I was actually in a coma for two months. And, uh, and I just came out of it and realized I hadn't filed my <laughs> appeal. You know what? That might fly. <laughs> <laughs> Not my fly. But it's, it's situations where, you know, I was trying to find someone to help me figure out what yeah. to do. Yeah. That's met with a little more skepticism because mm-hmm. you've had a month, right? So yeah. if you can show that there's been serious prejudice, usually the prejudice has to be, has to stem from the board's action for there to be sympathy. So yeah. if they've done something to prejudice you, then yeah, sure, they'll enough. consider an application to extend or reopen an appeal that's been abandoned or something like that. But if it's, if so, you've done something wrong to miss those deadlines, it's a lot harder to get get over. Hmm. But abs- you can absolutely ask. Yeah, make the pitch. Yeah, okay. So the, the so the, the the reality is, don't delay. Get your act together, and and it, like you indicated, it's not a complicated thing to get the ball rolling and to make sure you don't fall offside. Yeah, and you don't have to. You can always get legal advice afterwards, and you can always discontinue your appeal if the legal advice you get is there's no hope, right? But there's don't don't delay in filing the appeal because you don't know what your chances are. You can always withdraw. There's no consequences to withdrawing an appeal that that you filed and there's no costs associated with it. So file it and then get legal advice right out right away, but after you file your notice of appeal. If you're not represented at you know at any step prior to that. Mm-hmm. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so maybe I'll jump into what happens at the IAD in terms of a residency obligation appeal and what the IAD would consider. Yeah, exactly. That would be great. So when uh, the removal order is written up, it's done by the immigration division and they will have done so based on the allegations and the reports that immigration has written against you saying, these are the facts we're alleging. And the, sometimes you can fight with those allegations at the immigration division, but Say, for example, you fought with those legal, the the factual basis of those reports and the immigration division disagreed with you and said, we will issue the removal order. You can still fight with the legal findings at the IAD. And this applies to any kind of removal order appeal. So in a residency obligation appeal, um, you can fight with whether the, the removal order was properly and legally issued to you. And we've talked about living in Canada for two years out of five years, but what we, we haven't touched on is exceptions to that. Maybe we should just talk about that for Probably, a yeah, let's take a step back, yeah, and yeah. just address those. So in ter- you do have to live here for at least two of every five years, but we've got some exceptions to that rule. And uh, a couple of, the, well, the exceptions are, one, that you have been transferred abroad as part of your job in Canada to work abroad as part of that role, 
um, but you're working for a Canadian company. That's number one. And correct me, Mark, if I'm like misstating. No, no, exactly that's what right. The, the it's not. Are. It's not easy because usually when you're transferred abroad, you're transferred to a foreign subsidiary of that company, which then kills that possibility. Yeah, and, and so, you have to be really careful. I've had people start their own companies mm -hmm. just to facilitate their ability to live abroad, and that doesn't fly either. No, so it, it has does to not. Be, the company had the purpose of it can't just be to let you move yeah, abroad. Yeah, a vehicle to, to maintain now, residency. I've done mm -hmm. a residency obligation for a, a guy who genuinely started a company that was fabricating oil and gas equipment in Canada, and he was getting a lot of the technology built in China. And so he was he was spending an inordinate amount of time in China, but the company wasn't set up just for him to do that. Like it was a genuine part of his job and that appeal was successful. So I'm not saying you can't ha you can't be working for your own company legitimately and fall under this exception. It just gets a little bit tougher. Absolutely. So, so that's the first one. The second one is if you're accompanying your permanent resident spouse, who is being sent overseas as part of uh, his Canadian employment, and he, rem he or she remains employed with a Canadian company. And the third is if you're accompanying a Canadian citizen spouse. And in that situation, um, it doesn't matter who's accompanying who. So for example, if I'm a permanent resident and my husband's a citizen, and I get sent overseas or I have a job opportunity, as long as he comes along with me and we're living together, I get to count all of that time as residency. So as long as you're accompanying a Canadian spouse outside of Canada, you continue to meet your residency obligations regardless of how long you spend outside the country. Okay, let's let's have some fun with this. And you probably know where I'm going. <laughs> so I feel I, like you're testing So me I have no no, this is more just all of the the um the various comments and thoughts and proposals that have come up in our many previous CBA national conferences on uh, creative ways of, of saving people who have no longer met their residency. So you're so I'm overseas, I'm a permanent resident, but I've been out of the country for about five years. And then I met I meet this wonderful woman who is just happens to be working for a company abroad in, oh, I don't know, Ireland. And um, I decide, hey, we decide we're going to get married. And she's a Canadian. She's still stationed in Ireland where I am too. And uh, I marry her. And so, does the clock start ticking for me? What do you think? That's a really interesting scenario. I don't know that I've thought about that. <laughs> I think the way I would approach that is I would tell that person not to, like if it's been five years, they have no PR card. They have, no. They're not gonna be granted any way to come back as a PR, but I would probably tell them to stay put with that Canadian spouse for the next two years. And when they make that application, or a travel document that so the five-year period for residency is counted from the moment that you ask for that travel document or PR card so if they look back in those five years I would make the pitch that they have lived with their Canadian spouse for two years out of five and that they meet the residency obligation <laughs> you know, what have you heard? Well, no, it's, it's interesting. Like it's it's a catch twenty two, right? So I think like there's there's definitely a, um, a lot of support for that argument, and yeah. I guess the the reality now is how long does it take to do a spousal sponsorship if that spouse is uh, you know is planning on returning to Canada? Then obviously you know they they file the spousal sponsorship and hopefully it's you know 12 months you've you've got your PR again but there still has to be a determination that you're no longer a permanent resident right so right. you still have to go through that process and um but I think yeah I think there's a, a really really good argument to be made I haven't heard of anyone who's actually tried to do that but it would be very curious maybe if you're uh, you know one of those lawyers out there that's tuning in and and say, hey, yeah, I heard about that situation. Someone actually did that and it worked. We'd love to hear about it. So let mm -hmm. us know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I, I, it's Things have changed since people started needing ETAs to come to Canada. So yes. back when visa exempt foreign nationals could just travel here on their passports, what was very easy to do was for somebody from Ireland, for example, to come back just on their passport because they could get on a plane and come back without a PR card. No one would ask them any questions. They didn't need a visa. And once you're back in Canada, again, that port of entry officer may not turn their mind to even asking whether you have permanent residence in Canada or not. They would just admit you as a visitor usually. And once you're back in the country, you could live here for two years or more and then get your new PR card. That's become virtually impossible to do 
yeah. because of the ETA requirement. Exactly. Now the only option for you to do is to to get an ESTA or whatever to the U.S. Yeah. <laughs> and and then come across the border. Drive across. Yeah, yeah that's where, right. Yeah, or the because you don't need an ETA to drive across mm-hmm. the border. <laughs> still definitely way down on the list of options when I'm advising clients. Totally, but sometimes, totally. sometimes yeah. you... But you uh, know what? When that person who is still a PR, even if they've lived... Until the Immigration Appeal Division or a visa officer, yes. if you accept that decision, tells you you're no longer a PR, you remain a PR. Which means if you've lived outside of Canada, even for like 10, 15, 20 years, you're still a PR. And when you come across that border, even if it's a Canada-US border, absolutely you might be written up, but you have a right to come back into this country and deal with whatever problems afterwards, but they must let you in. Now from so a practical, yeah, and from a practical standpoint, I know we didn't, we kind of glossed over it pretty quickly, but the actual determination that you have know you've lost your permanent residence is not made by a border officer they right. they write a 44 report they they make the you know they make the referral but yeah. the decision isn't made by them no and it's not even made at the time that you're issued that removal order at the immigration division that is conditional on the outcome of your appeal so if you pursue that appeal you you remain a permanent resident until that that the IAD makes a final decision and even then so the IAD will make a decision. If it's negative, you've got some federal court options. But at the moment that the IAD decides is sort of when you either remain a PR or you lose your PR. But until that point, you, you keep that status. So w- with the Immigration Division, how much of an opportunity, opportunity do you have to, you know, to provide evidence or to, to challenge their decision to, you know, to, to make that finding? I think it depends on uh, if it's a straight up, I didn't live here long enough. Mm-hmm. It's... You, you've got nothing to say. They yeah. don't have, like Fiscal I said, they have days. no agency jurisdiction. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. if it's a straightforward, I got my PR, I left Canada, haven't lived here enough, then it's, like you said, a fit, a complete. Yeah. They're going to issue that removal order. But if you're relying on one of the exceptions that we talked about, then absolutely you can present a very strong case to the immigration division, arguing that you fit under one of these exceptions. And that because of that, the the 44 report that was referred to them is not well-founded on, on the facts and they should not issue the removal order. And there's a very good chance if, if you can prove that the exceptions apply, that you will be successful and you don't even have to go to the appeal and no removal order would even be issued. Hmm. And I, I should add that all of these exceptions apply to outside Canada decisions at a visa office as well. Hmm. So if you've been you know, working abroad for a Canadian company and it just so happens your PR card expires and you're trying to get a travel document to come back, you can always say, I've been working for my Canadian company abroad. Here's proof, and they can they can assess that there as well. So it's not just in Canada. Interesting. Okay. Okay. So we're we got off on a tangent. No, but it's not <laughs> bad. And you know what I'm thinking? Like as we're talking about this, um, like there's lots to talk about with these there's residency so obligation yeah. appeals, and um, lots of ins and outs. And this is a, a really really important area for people to understand. In all honesty, I think the, the removal order appeals themselves, I think we could do a separate episode on it. And um, yeah. I, I think we I think we continue down the path of the, you know, what we've been discussing here um, about the residency appeals and let's carry that forward to its conclusion. Sure. And then and then let's let's do another episode. Let's have our next episode as a um, yeah, specifically addressing the removal order appeals. There's so much to talk about and I don't want to. You know, I don't want no, to shortchange. No, I know, change. I know. There's mm-hmm. so, there are so many nuances. And this is sort of, this is a good transition into removal order appeals because the residency obligation issue in Canada is a removal order appeal. That's what you're dealing with. But gotcha. um, it's sort of a, this is the one that straddles both outside Canada decisions and in Canada decisions. So. Well, do you know what? Then let's continue. Let's continue down this path. Right? Yeah, let's let's continue it. Uh, like the original <laughs> plan, yeah. You decide. I think if we get rambling for too long, you might have a point that if it's a separate episode, then people <laughs> can have a break and recoup and come back and listen to it another day. <laughs> this is, and they're and they're very distinct topics. Like the the other two things we were going to talk about are criminality and misrep, which are very very different than residency obligations. Okay, then so. let's split those off for sure. Sure. And yeah, then we can we'll, do that. And then we'll cover these. Yes, and including obviously diving into the the powers of the ID and what the actual outcomes could be for sure yeah. yeah and we can cover that at the end of this one and do a recap yeah. at the end of the next one perfect well. let's do that that makes awesome. a lot of sense yeah okay so i think we were talking about challenging the legal validity of the um 
of the removal order. And so, and that's when I remember we hadn't talked about these exceptions. So if the immigration division disagrees with you about whether one of these exceptions applies, then you can challenge it again at the immigration appeal division saying, I think the immigration division got it wrong. Here's why. And the IAD has the jurisdiction to revisit that legal finding and whether the removal order should have been issued at all. And if you have a pretty strong case that you meet one of these exceptions, it's worthwhile fighting it on the legal findings because it's a lot harder to get humanitarian relief than it is to say, this is not yeah, correct in law. based, yeah, it's not correct in law. Don't, you know, set this aside. That's a lot um, more straightforward to argue before a decision maker. So if that path exists, then absolutely pursue it. But if the removal is legally valid, say, for example, you don't meet one of the exceptions and you just haven't lived here long enough, then you delve into all of the humanitarian reasons why, despite you not having living, lived here long enough, why should the IAD let you stay? And there's an art to this part. I was, I was going to say, <laughs> so if you were to have these two columns on the one side, maybe you got a chance. On the other side, you don't have a prayer. You know, how would you divide up the, the, the well, explanations and, and the justifications for, you know, for being outside? Obviously, you know, my, my, my parents, uh, you know, they were they were dying and then I had to care for, you know, whatever else. And I was physically prevented from returning or in, I remember I had one, uh, one case where I had a client. She um, she was in the process of divorce proceedings with her with her husband. She went back to Syria to deal with property and then he tied her up in the legal um, system and she she actually could not leave mm-hmm. um, you know she wasn't uh, granted an ability to leave the country yeah. and uh, and so yeah circumstances in your control versus circumstances outside of your control definitely play a significant totally. role yeah and like you said you know is it an ill parent that you you're the only child who's gonna go take care of them that's a very compelling reason uh, versus I had a really good job that I took a holiday from to come and get my PR and I went right back to it and it paid really well and I you know I just didn't want to come back because it was a good life that we're leading that has a lot less sympathy to it than um, something like a, a sick parent but there's a huge number of reasons why people don't end up living in Canada and I don't know that I've, I've appealed two of the exact same fact patterns right. before right so there's I had one a, a little while ago um, and this, this was before ETA. So this woman was Dutch. And so she traveled on her Dutch passport. And she had come to Canada as a child with her parents. And they'd settled in southern Alberta. They were farmers. And she had a, she, I think she might have been a teenager. Or, you know, those early teen years where things are just horrible for everybody. Yes. <laughs> and she just had a really hard time adjusting. And so when she turned 18, she decided... I'm going to, and so she had the relationship with this guy in Canada. They were teenagers, whatever. And then she, I think she might have gone to college here and then graduated and then moved to Holland to go work as a nurse. And she was only going to go for a short time, but that turned into some good opportunities and she ended up staying. But then she rekindled this relationship with this old boyfriend to the point where it got serious enough that they were going to get married. Sorry? I wonder if I referred this client to you. It sure sounds familiar. <laughs> oh, you might have. Oh, you very well might have. Because this person is, is from, I forget where they were, in some small town in Alberta. Yeah, so yeah. I'm sure they came through you. <laughs> but um, she, so, so she was back in Canada when this appeal happened. And they were on the verge of getting married. And so her explanation for why she was absent was very selfish, very, you know, I, I wanted to pursue yes. these opportunities. But then, you know, she said, since then, I've grown up, I've come to realize what I have here, and my partner is here. And in that situation, there would have been an easy way for him to sponsor her. Like, they'd been living common law by the time this appeal happened. Yeah. So we could have just dropped it all and said, you know what, forget it. He'll sponsor her as his partner. And so she'll renounce her status and and, and we can start all over. But we were far enough into the appeal process that we thought, let's try. Yeah. And, I, and, I, and part of the argument to the member was, why? what's the point in I know, denying having this them appeal go, when go this back. person has a path yeah. to get this PR back anyways? Exactly. Right? So we're yeah. going to waste all these resources to file a new application, take up 
time at a visa, at a inland office for them to process this application. She's not going anywhere. No, she's going to be here something. anyway. She's in Canada. Exactly. Yeah. So why not just allow this to happen? Now, there's a lot of other sympathetic factors as well, of course, but um, that was part of my argument is, are we going to achieve anything by stripping this person of their status? No, because they're going to have a bath within a year. So why don't we just get there now? <laughs> And? and so, the, and, and it was successful. Yeah. And she was sense. allowed to remain. Now, the minister opposed that whole line of uh, what? argument. What? That is shocking. Yeah, it wasn't by consent. It was, it I, was opposed. Oh, I yeah. can't believe that. It's in the best interest of the, you know, of the department that, yeah. uh, you know, that these people not be allowed to abuse the system. Yes, that was the position. <laughs> but let me, maybe we'll transition into some of the other factors Let's. that the IED would consider, Let's. a lot of which were present here. So one of them is, how short are you? And I can't remember in this particular case how short like she five was. Like 5'1", five 5'2", five you got less of a chance than if you're six foot? <laughs> she was very tall. <laughs> she was Dutch, I mentioned. Uh, no. So how, how many days are you short in terms of the 730? So have you lived here for a month? And then have, yeah, and have then left. left since then and yeah. never come back? Or, yeah. you never, know, never do you have ties. 650 out of the 730 days, yeah. right? So that's yeah. a big factor is how, how deficient are you in terms of meeting your residency obligation? The other thing they'll look at is before you left Canada, how long were you living here? So this person lived here since childhood, like I said. And so she had built her entire life here. She had friends here. All of her family were here. And that was a big family. She had parents and I want to say like four or five siblings. It was a really big family. Yeah, they were all here. Yeah. They were married. There was nieces, nephews, children. Like it was, a, they were all here. So they look at what did you do before you left? Did you make a life in Canada or did you just come get your PR and, and leave? Because that makes a difference. The other thing is how long had she been back and what she'd done with herself since coming back. Now, back then, appeals were taking quite a long time to be heard. So from the time that she filed her appeal to her hearing, she probably waited about 18 months wow. to actually have that hearing, which allowed people enough time to sort of get back on track, yeah, get established, get themselves. jobs, mm -hmm. all of that, right? Which is an important thing that the, the board will look at. Um, before COVID, appeals were being heard within about eight months. Like it was really, really fast. Six to eight months, we were having hearings. And so it made it a lot more difficult for people who would just come back to say, I've done all these things to get reestablished. That was, you know, a lot harder, but we'll see what it is now. <laughs> um, what else did they look at? The reason why they left. So we've talked about that a little bit, whether it was beyond their control or whether it was a, an overt decision. Family ties, so both family ties in Canada and abroad. And where this becomes important is if they have no other ties to Canada, um, but everybody else is back home, even if they spent a lot of time here before they left, then the board might take the position that, yeah, you know, you spent some time here, but this is not really where your life is. All of your family is abroad. They can help you resettle if, if you needed to. So that's going to play against you in a situation like that. Um, they, they can look at the pattern of absences as well. So, you know, do you do you leave frequently for, you know, business type trips or vacations? Or is it more you were absent for three years in a big chunk? So that might play into that as well. Establishment we've talked about. And then um, children. If there are any children whose best interests are implicated by a decision, children are always a very, very big part of any kind of humanitarian plea. And it doesn't even have to be that person's child. It can be any children who are directly affected by that decision. So if there's nieces or nephews or grandkids, or even kids you're not related to who are in your life in some kind of significant way that if you are not allowed to remain here, there will be a huge impact on them. Those interests will be considered. So that generally speaking are the types of humanitarian factors that um, a member at the IED would look at to see whether that person should be allowed to remain a permanent resident. All right. So they so they take their shot at it. Practically speaking, like what does it look like? What does the hearing look like? Well, the, maybe we'll back up a little bit before we sure. get to the hearing. Mm -hmm. From the moment that they file that notice of appeal, let's talk about what that process involves. So, like I said, it's a simple two-page document that you get to the Immigration Appeal Division. That's the easiest part of this whole process. 
once that starts, you'll get um, notified by the IED that they've received your notice of appeal. They'll give you a file number. And what follows is a copy of the what's called a tribunal record. So every, all the documents that immigration is relying on to build this case against you. So they'll give you a copy of all of that. And, and how, how long does it usually take to get that? The rules say they have to give it to you within 120 days. So you're looking at that, that amount of time, roughly. In a normal and, world. Yeah. That's, that's, in a typical time, it's going to take you about that much time to get. And it could take longer. So if you don't have it within that time, I've contacted the board and said, this time has passed, we don't have this. And then they'll make inquiries of immigration as to why it hasn't been produced. And sometimes it just gets forgotten. Sometimes there's a good reason why there's a delay, um, but it eventually comes. And when that comes, it's really important to go through all those documents to see what there is exactly that the government is relying on to say you shouldn't be allowed to stay a permanent resident. The record in a residency obligation appeal can be fairly sparse. So if it's a situation of, I just didn't live here long enough and no exceptions apply, then it's gonna be a matter of, they, they've been absent all these days, it doesn't add up, period. So you're not gonna, there's not gonna be anything shocking in that record. If it's, um, you know, in one of the exceptions, there might be more documents uh, to, to explain why they don't think you meet one of the exceptions. And you'll also get a copy of the transcript from the immigration division, if that's the path that you came through. Um, or you'll get a copy of the visa office decision as part of that process, if that's, um, that's where the decision was made. So once the tribunal record comes, then we start working on reviewing that with the person and saying, okay, these are the issues that we need to address. And that really depends on what their circumstances are. So there's no boilerplate list of documents that I give a client and say, give me these things, you will win. <laughs> Rather, I go through this, like, like we chatted, I, I go through asking them questions about their past, of when did they come, why did they leave, who's in their family. You know, sometimes one person in a family goes abroad to work, but their, their spouse and children remain in Canada the whole time. I've had cases where the spouse and children have become Canadian citizens. <laughs> yes. And this one person who's worked abroad is now facing removals because of not meeting residency. So just getting the person's story is really, really important. And that actually happens. I shouldn't say it happens at the seat, at the record stage. It happens at the beginning. But we revisit all of this to try to come up with a list of a wish list of all the documents that would be helpful in their situation. So who are the people who could help you? We make a list. And then we talk about later whether some of those people should be witnesses at your hearing, or whether it would be enough for them to just provide letters of support. Um, we talk about uh, establishment documents. What have you done? Can you get me employment letters? Can you get me, um, you know, you went abroad to take care of your parents who were dying. Well, I need hospital records and medical records and a death certificate and photos, you know, all those kinds of things. So we start building a file. Rekha, when you're when you're collecting yeah. those documents, do you, like in terms of a sworn statement versus just a you know, just a mere a mere letter that someone is signing. Do you have a preference when you're going before uh, the IED? Yeah, it's always better to have a sworn statement. And I try to get them as much as possible because if they're sworn, they're presumed to be true. Whereas if it's just a letter, it's just a letter. There's no presumption that it's been sworn to be true. I so if, if possible, I, remember, I get uh, them to sign it in front of a notary. Gotcha. I remember, I think it was one of the past national conferences, and there was one of the officers uh, um, adjudicating the HNCs out in Vancouver, and she and I remember her saying specifically, "Oh, it makes no difference to me. I treat them the same." <laughs> and you know what? I think there might be for HNCs. I often just get letters, so I don't get yeah. sworn statements for a plain old humanitarian PR application that I'm filing to Vancouver. Yeah. Most of those are letters, but I do get people to include their IDs with that. So, and, but those letters are people talking about, this is what my life is like back in whatever country. Right. This is why the person shouldn't come back, or here's all the things that are very difficult. I mean, uh, there's nothing controversial in those letters that would make a difference whether they're sworn or not. And it's being looked at by an immigration officer. I think a hearing situation is different. It's a quasi-judicial process. The member's not a judge, but they are a decision maker. 
Um, so I think that the setting is a little bit different than just a visa office decision. So that I think would motivate me to have sworn evidence as a default in, a, in an appeal setting. Fair enough. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I, I'll get statements from everybody that I think would be helpful in that process. But once I've got those, so I collect all these documents. They trickle in. I tell people, you know, start collecting all of this. Don't wait till the last minute. Here's a list. Go forth and fetch me these items. <laughs> and they go into the world and they try to get me whatever they can. And we don't always get everything, but we try to get as much as possible. And we, we collect it in our office and we start a binder. Because eventually those documents have to be sent to the board and to an officer at CBSA who does hearings to say, here's what we're relying on. And there's some rules about how long before a hearing that has to be produced and how it has to be produced and all of that. But we start collecting that at the earliest possible opportunity so that we're not scrambling at the very end before a hearing to get that in. And we review that with our clients, go through it and decide how are we going to use those documents to help the person at their hearing. And a big, big piece of a successful hearing is actually preparing the appellant, the person who's challenging the decision, but also anyone else who might be useful to have as a witness at that appeal. So the person concerned is obviously the focus of the preparation. We do meeting after meeting after meeting where I try to go through all the possible questions that a board member might ask and get them used to answering those questions. And oftentimes, you know, people, it's important for people to know that the board's not there to trick you. They're not trying to trump you up. They just want to understand what your situation is. But people often have difficulties telling their story. And it's, it, 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 I don't know why it is. People have a really hard time talking about their lives and um, giving lots of details about their circumstances. So the preparation is a really big piece of, um, of the process. And then in terms of other witnesses that might be useful, we, we prep them as well. And in the, the case that we were just talking about, about the Dutch lady, um, we had her partner come as a witness yes. and it was very clear how close they were and how effective he would be if she was denied and and that I think that was a huge part of uh, why that appeal was successful the member could see she's got this extremely close marital relationship with this man who's a Canadian um, whose life is going to be very very badly affected if this appeal is denied and I think that was a big factor. And not having him there as a witness, I think, would have almost looked bad. You know, if you have somebody who's that close to you and can support you, if they don't come and don't testify, what does that say? So there's there's tricks to all of this and knowing what would help, what won't help, because sometimes witnesses are just bad. Yeah. <laughs> and you have to know, you know, am I going to do harm by calling this person who just is a bad witness? Not that they're malicious or you know, have any ill intent, but some people are just bad witnesses and they just don't perform well. So you have to know enough about people to know whether it would actually help to have witnesses beyond the appellant who has to testify. Now, is it in those circumstances, um, do you then choose to have them provide a, a statement or an affidavit or something like that? Versus appearing so, in person? Yeah, and what I'll do in that situation is still prepare them and I'll have them there, not in the room, but I'll have them present in the building and I'll say to the member or to the CBSA, you have their sworn declarations. I have made them available. They're here and they're open to cross-examination if you want to question them on their affidavit. And that's helpful because if I give them that chance to say, you can question them if you have any doubts about what they've written down, you can question them. They're right here. Go ahead. And they choose not to, then they can't turn around and say, I have concerns about anything in their stat deck or their affidavit because they were given an opportunity to ask them questions about that and they chose not to. So I, I tend to, to make them available if they're important enough. Now, if it's some, you know, a character reference, I work with this person, she's wonderful, I'm not going to produce that person. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. But, you know, if it's important enough, I will make that person available. That makes Yeah, okay, yeah, I get it. Yeah, so, so that's the background to the hearing. And at the hearing itself, um, it happens... In, a, in an informal enough room, in Calgary anyways, it's it's a setting where there's 
desks in a circle. I feel like it's a, a school environment. <laughs> the member sits at one end and the CBSA officer's on one desk and I'm at another and my client is at another. And sometimes there's interpretation. So the interpreter might be there either in person or by phone. And then um, if there are witnesses, what I will usually do is have them wait in the waiting room. And the reason for that is you don't want their evidence to be tainted by what the appellant is gonna say. You don't want there to be a perception that now that they know what the appellant has said, they're just copying it and providing corroborating statements. You want them to be spontaneous. So it's important never to have witnesses in the room if the appellant is testifying. Um, and then the member starts the hearing by saying, introducing themselves to the, to the room and saying, you know, this is the appeal of so-and-so from a residency obligation removal order and just some preliminary things, make sure everybody has the same set of documents, whether it's from the government or from the appellant. And then they ask the, the, the lawyer present or the minister whether there's any preliminary issues to deal with. And if they're not, there are no issues, then they swear in the appellant um, and, and it begins. And at an appeal, I, as the appellant's lawyer, do the bulk of the questioning. So it starts with me and I go into line finish. The member can interrupt whenever they want. And some are fairly engaging in terms of clarifying questions as we go. And some sort of wait until the end and ask whatever clarifying questions they might have at that point. But after I'm done my questioning, then the minister gets to cross-examine that witness. And then the, again, the member can ask any clarifying questions. I get a last kick to try to clarify anything that might have gone wrong in cross, which you hope never does. Um, and at the end of all of that, the evidence is done from the appellant. You go through the same process with any witnesses that might be there. And once all the evidence is in, you get a chance to do uh, final legal arguments. Now, I should back up a little bit. Once all the evidence is in, the member will look at the minister and say, are you still They'll say, has your position changed, changed. which means, <laughs> which means are, you know, are you in a position to consent at this point? Are you still opposing this appeal? And if you're lucky, they'll say, you know, after hearing from these people, I, uh, I think I will change my position and, and consent to this appeal, which is fantastic because then you've won. Or because you <clears throat> okay. go ahead. I, I was going to say, or, or because your, your materials that you provided were so overwhelmingly persuasive they kind of hint at you, you know, before the hearing starts, I really only have issues about these one or two things and, you know, we can speed this up. <laughs> yes. Well, you know what? There's one hearings office. Can I name hearings officers that of I, you it's, can, it's a good absolutely. comment. <laughs> yeah. So Catherine King in Calgary, she's been doing this for decades, but she took a hiatus and did visa office work for Guatemala. a long time. Yeah. She's come back and does hearings again yeah. and she will take you aside at before the hearing even starts and says, I've looked at everything, here are the things that are causing me problems. And she'll very bluntly tell you exactly what she's looking for, which is very helpful from my perspective because then I know, okay, I can focus my questions on these points. And if she still has issues on those points, she can ask her questions. And Catherine is, is ruthless <laughs> in her cross. Um, but knowing that from ministers counsel is extremely helpful it shows you that they've looked at the materials they've come thought about the case um, and want to resolve the case positively if possible so if their issues can be dealt with they're willing to consent and that's i find the best scenario yeah. the best kind of officer to have on the other side i don't uh, did you know my history with Catherine? no so when i was in law school that <coughs> ufc finishing up my last year <clears throat> I worked as her pro bono student, her pro her pro bono slave, as she called me. <laughs> and that's really, to a large extent, how I, I, I got into immigration. And obviously, I worked on the border, but working as her little slave there, preparing uh, you know packets for hearings and uh, working with her and Anna Audia, who is unfortunately no longer with us, but yeah. um, for years and years. And she, yeah, she, she was just awesome, just just phenomenal. And then, she's you know, an amazing mentor. <clears throat> yeah. She's just a great, great person. And you, like you said, she does not pull any punches and, no. and but she's fair. She's reasonable. Uh -huh. But um, yeah, it's just, it's interesting that you mentioned her name of all the names. And yeah, I think the world of Catherine. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So um, where were we? 
I got I got distracted <laughs> again. Uh, we were talking. Oh yeah. So the member will ask the minister whether they have changed their position, and if not, then I get to make my legal arguments first, my submissions. The minister goes next, and then the member makes a decision. Usually not at the end of the appeal. So for most IED appeals, in my experience, they will reserve their decision, which means I have to go think about everything that you've said, everything you've given me, and everything I've heard today, and decide whether to allow this appeal or not. And a decision follows. Most members issue those decisions within a few weeks, so it's not too long of a wait. Um, but that's typ typical in, a, in an IED situation. Oftentimes, um, I don't typically get a positive or a negative decision right from the bench. Mm -hmm. And so this would be a nice maybe transition into what could those decisions be? Yeah, let's talk about those. Sure. And so the best case is obviously that your appeal is allowed, meaning I accept either that it was the removal was not well founded on law in law or that there's enough humanitarian reasons to let you keep your PR status even though you didn't do what you were supposed to do you didn't live here enough that's your best case you won your appeal you remain a PR you go on with your life if you lose your appeal so the appeal is denied that means you have lost your permanent residence and um, you can try to take that decision to the federal court to it's not an appeal but it's called a judicial review so the court will review the IED's decision to see whether it was reasonable or not and you've got that episode that I did with you for federal court that yes talks all about federal court but that's the only way to challenge a negative decision and if you're successful at the court that means you get a new appeal it doesn't mean you get to keep your PR so you get to go back and try again in front of a different member so that's a decision, that's the, a result you want to avoid, obviously. And the IED has a, a third power, it's called a stay of removal. And it's seldom used in cases like this. It's usually meant for criminal cases. And a stay just means we're going to defer this decision for a period of time, a year, two years, whatever it might be, to see what you do. <laughs> yeah. And, and you can see how that makes sense in it a does. criminal context, right? Yep. We're going to... We're going to stay this for, for three years and we'll see if you behave yourself. And if you do, we'll grant the appeal. And if you don't, we'll deny the appeal. I, I personally have never been given a stay in a non-criminal context. Mm -hmm. So in a residency obligation, most of the time it's going to be either yes or no. Yes or no. But I, I suppose a stay could happen to say, you know what, you know, I'm going to stay this decision for two years and let's see if you stick around. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't think they're prevented from doing that. I just don't see it happening. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. yeah. So those are the three possibilities of what, what could happen at the end of an appeal. Excellent. Well, that's that, that's awesome, Rick. I really appreciate the, you know, the whole process flow that we can all see now how this plays out. Because often you just don't understand unless you've been living this world <coughs> how things flow, each of the steps you know, the strategies, what to expect, all of this has been super, super helpful. Now, Good. in our topic, we also were going to talk about, you know, the, the misrep and criminality and those kinds of things. I'm yeah. not sure. We're, we're, we've covered quite a bit here in this episode. I don't know if you, if you have anything to add about those or whether they <coughs> are sufficient to, to spin off into a, another episode within I our, think uh, we our special series. Off. We blabbered on for so long on this. I blabbered on. <laughs> but that's what makes it good. That's what makes these episodes so good. It's the it's discussing the real life situations. You know, yeah. that's what puts the meat on the bones. You know, we can all go. We can go review the law, the regs. Um, you know, uh, the rules of court. You can you, you know the IED rules. All of those things you can review. But it's these practical scenarios as to how you know how you've lived in that environment with your clients that's what really adds the value so that's what makes this series special <laughs> when we're talking about immigration hearings and appeals so that's that's awesome so thank you so much um, Reka for spending just another amazing amount of time sharing all of the practice tips secrets all of the insight um, and uh, yeah it, it makes this podcast what it is today so thank you so much not a worry I enjoy it Thanks for having me. Now, as always, after listening to this, someone realizes, oh, my goodness, I am in Canada, but um, I have this, th this certain matter pending regarding my residency. I don't know if I'm going to be making it. Um, I need to, to hire an immigration lawyer to help me. What is the best way for them to reach out to you? 
probably by email. I am in meetings either doing this or actually <laughs> <Yes>. seeing clients <laughs> yeah. for, for a bit, good part of my day. So catching me on the phone is hard. But my email is, uh, maybe you can post it on the show I notes. Will. But it's, yeah, it's rmcnutt at karenpartners.com. And Karen is C-A-R-O-N, partners with an S.com. Um, and that's, yeah, that's probably the easiest way. I check my emails sometimes against my better judgment during the evenings <laughs> or on weekends. Yeah. So, you know, I think we all do that. But yes. that's, yeah, that's probably the easiest way to get a hold of me. Fantastic. Well, this is great. Well, thank you so much for this. So we will continue on. We will, we will talk about, uh, you know, the criminality and the misrep kind of side of things when things go south for a permanent resident um, and, uh, you know, as they're interacting with the IED. So we'll cover that in our next episode. So stay tuned for that, everyone. And uh, thanks once again, Rick. I appreciate you joining me. Thanks, Mark. Okay. Greatest country in